Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the other half. Supplemental, Anna Guerin, the poppy lady from France. Surprise! If you wondered why the last show didn't have a teaser about the next episode, well, it's because I had this little surprise supplemental planned. If you're only here for your Alex of Hessen knowledge, then never fear, your regularly scheduled programming will be back in two weeks. But I do hope you'll stick around. This second season of the podcast is called The Mothers of World War I, and that conflict provides the backdrop for almost everything that we have discussed over the last year or so. The daughters of Queen Victoria lived through the shaping of late 19th century Europe, and their daughters had to play their part in the drama and the death that ensued. But, of course, they weren't the only women shaping the story. Today, that is Sunday, November the 10th, we mark Remembrance Sunday in the UK. It is marked on the nearest Sunday to the 11th of November, the anniversary of the day in 1918 when the armistice was signed, ending hostilities between the Allies and the Germans in World War I. Armistice Day, also known as Remembrance Day or Veterans Day, is marked by every country that fought in that conflict in their own way and by different names. But the most enduring image of remembrance in the UK and across the Commonwealth is the simple red poppy. In the weeks leading up to the commemorations, Britain's streets are filled with ordinary people pinning this simple paper flower to their lapels and jumpers. You see them when you go to work, on the way to the shops, everywhere you go. You can't turn on the TV without seeing them. Newspaper front pages carry its image. Sports teams wear special kits with the poppy printed upon it. Millions of people, myself included, attend local services remembrance at war memorials or watch ceremonies on television. As politicians, 
clergymen and soldiers lay wreaths of poppies to remember the dead. In my view, it is one of the most impactful, moving and spirited things that we do as a society. And this is repeated across the Commonwealth. But why? Where did it come from? Who started it? Well, no one person is responsible for the Red Remembrance Puppy. But there is someone that can claim a great deal of the credit. And they are almost entirely unknown. Her name is Anna Guerin, and she is the subject of this special supplemental episode. So, to all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. In Flanders' fields, the poppies blow, between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks, still bravely, singing fly scarce heard amidst the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow. Loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders' fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. If ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders' fields. That poem, one of the most famous of the incredible canon of poetry that emerged from the trenches of the First World War, is often cited as where the association between the poppy and the First World War began in public consciousness. It was written by John McRae, a lieutenant colonel in the Canadian Field Artillery in 1915. His best friend had been killed in action during the bloody Second Battle of Ypres, and he noticed how the only flowers that could grow in that region made desolate and lifeless by artillery fire was the humble red poppy. That poem is now widely thought to be the origin story of the red poppy that so many of us wear in the lead-up to Armistice Day. But that's not really the case. Poppy days were held during the war years, and the emblem was associated with the conflict. But these would have been forgotten if it were not for the efforts of one remarkable woman. Anna Alex Boulle was born on the 5th of February 1878 in Vallon, now called Vallon-Pont-d'Arc, a small town in the Ardèche department in the south of France. Little is known of her upbringing in this sleepy part of rural France, so we'll skip ahead to 1897, where the 19-year-old Anna married a Franco-Cuban man named Paul Rabini and emigrated with him to Madagascar. Madagascar had only just been made into a French colony after they'd conquered the island from its native government earlier that year. 
Although the French military had declared victory, there was still widespread insurgency. And so it was believed that quote-unquote civilising the natives would be crucial to entrenching French control. This meant that, along with soldiers, the new governor of the island needed educators to teach the Madagascans the French language, along with European morality and religion. Schools were set up in missions and hospitals, and this was the environment into which Anna arrived after her three-month voyage. She appears to have been very successful, and a year later is listed as being the director of a school for girls in Tamatav, a coastal city on the eastern side of the island. The girls that she taught were impoverished and often working in the sex trade. She taught them literacy, along with practical skills that could provide them with a living, before expanding to also offering a more broad education to the children of French colonists. Her school was successful, gaining a grant from the governing authorities and expanding from an initial 10 pupils to around 50 the following year, and the school continued to expand and grow in importance over the next few years. She was widely liked and respected within the local community as a skilled teacher and head teacher. Indeed, in 1907, she was awarded Officier d'Académie Silver Palms, a medal for services to education, reportedly one of the youngest people ever to receive the commendation. But at home, things were not so rosy. She had two daughters with her husband, but for unknown reasons, in 1907 they divorced, with Paul moving to another part of the island to become a prospector. Two years later, Anna and her two daughters left Madagascar. She briefly settled in Paris, and there she married a justice of the peace named Eugène Guerin. This was not a typical marriage, as pretty much as soon as they tied the knot, Eugène moved to French Sudan, which is modern Mali, and within a year, Anna was in London, working as a lecturer for the Alliance Française. There, she mostly lectured on the subject of Madagascar, doing so in French, with it later being translated by a colleague. And they were very well received. Here is a report in the Middlesex County Times. Quote, There was so much of interest in the admirable lecture given by Madame Guerin at Girton Hall on Thursday afternoon, that, although owing to insufficient power for the lighting apparatus, the slides could not be projected onto the sheet, the lack was not felt to be any great hardship and the lecture was most thoroughly enjoyed. She later expanded her repertoire to speak on a wide range of subjects related to French culture and history. The Times wrote this about one of these lectures. Quote, the audience is chiefly feminine, for it is doubtless women who are most attracted by these intimate little talks about the famous French women of a past age, but the men who attend them find it worthwhile to do so. She is a speaker of beautiful prose and speaks it with a fine art. Her matter is always interesting and vivid, and she enlivens it with little stories told with a charming demure humour. Her subject on Friday was the sisters of Napoleon and other celebrated women of the First Empire. She wore a simple dress copied from one made with her own hands by one of Napoleon's sisters. She continued to do this over the next few years, and the reviews in the papers were glowing, describing her as a gifted actress and showwoman. We don't have much information on her husband, and so we don't know how often, if at all, he visited his wife over this period. Indeed, the next we hear from him is at the World's Fair at Lyon in 1914, just before war broke out, manning a stall on the subject of the French colonies. 
He served during the war in the army and then continued to work in the colonies up to his death. Basically, don't worry about the husband. The only important thing he really did for us is change Anna's name to Madame Guerin. Possibly believing that her artistic lecture show might not find as much fame in wartime Britain, Anna moved to the United States in October 1914, leaving her children at boarding school in England in the care of her mother, although they would join her the following year. Anna's principal reason for this tour wasn't mere fame and fortune. She wanted to raise money for French and Belgian refugees. She lectured at all the top universities, touring the country from Harvard, Yale and Vassar on the East Coast to the University of Georgia in the South and University of Illinois in the Midwest. Her subject was still women from French history, most notably from the French Revolution era, but she interposed this with stories of the hardship of the French people. Aware that America was neutral, she didn't raise money directly for military causes, focusing instead on the plight of civilians. She was as popular in the US as she had been in the UK, earning a glowing reviews in the press and even receiving a profile in the New York Tribune. As part of it, she made the claim that, quote, The women of France have always been feminists. French history is replete with their achievements. In their salons, they ruled over the world of arts and letters. As wives and mistresses of kings, they ruled France. Every French woman is working for her country today. They have taken the place of their husbands in the fields and in the shops, and they saw and knit and bandage for the soldiers at the front. It is the women, of course, who give in all the wars. They give the sons and the fathers and husbands. And now my countrywomen are giving everything but their lives. This view of feminism is not mainstream today, but was fairly radical for the time, and tied into the arguments of people like the suffragettes, who pointed to the work that women were doing to support the war effort as proof that they deserve the same rights as men. This combination of performance, French cultural lecture and philanthropy continued over the next few years, with Anna travelling all over the US and even parts of Canada, with her fundraising gaining ever more prominence in her show as the war continued to rage. Her causes were still orphans and widows rather than servicemen, but this changed a little in 1917, when the United States finally got off its butt and declared war on Germany. After this, she began to fundraise much more openly to support the French war effort, making the case that France helped the US when it was fighting for its independence, and now it was time for them to return the favour in her hour of need. She began to tour with an army veteran named Robert Arbour, who had served at the battles of the Marne, Ypres and the Somme, combining her historical context of the shared history between America and France with his harrowing wartime stories. You can see this passion in an extract from a speech she gave in Kansas in June 1918. Quote, I am here to thank you and to tell you that in spite of all France's has endured, never has she been brighter than since American soldiers have been fighting with her soldiers for liberty, democracy and humanity. We are determined to win this war at any cost. Anything would be preferable to subjugation to Germany. You cannot realise the wonders your American soldiers accomplish in France. Our soldiers and your soldiers are fighting in the great cause. They are not soldiers of France or America, but citizens of the world, 
fighting for liberty and humanity. The news has been bad lately. You cannot realise what this means for us all. I can see thousands of wounded soldiers, towns burning, and women and children fleeing from the Germans. But we shall hold them. The Germans shall never pass. When you complain about being porkless and wheatless, remember that there are no fightless days in the army, and the women of France are taking no workless days. You Americans do not know what it is to sacrifice. Here you have your families and homes. In France we have given everything. Our homes and families have been destroyed or met fates worse than death. Do you know we have one million wounded men, one million widows and two million orphans? When you are asked to give in their behalf, don't insult us by thinking we are asking for charity. For four years we have fought and bled to defend you. For as certainly as Germany wins, all America must prepare for a long, bloody war. Don't be afraid to give too much. We are terribly in need of money. Give every time your government asks it. Remember that while you are laughing and joking, the people of France are weeping and dying. Your American boys are giving their best. Your soldiers and our soldiers are fighting for the great cause of liberty and humanity. You cannot fail to do your duty. Powerful stuff, eh? She continued in this vein until October 1918, when the outbreak of the pandemic that is today known as Spanish influenza cut short her tour. She, therefore, set sail for France, arriving back in her home country just after the armistice was signed on the 11th of November 1918. While back in France, she travelled to the ravaged fields of northeastern France, visiting some of the troops who had only just laid down their arms, and even reportedly had an interview with the American commander-in-chief, General Pershing. While there, she was struck by how, even though the war was over, the suffering continued for the women and children of the region. So when she travelled back to the United States in early 1919, she resolved to continue her fundraising with even greater abandon. Her appearances now were often solely focused on her charity work, particularly those in support of orphan children, but she also worked to raise money for the victory loans or war bonds. Gone were her Marie Antoinette costumes, now she dressed as a French female war worker, and she was not subtle in these speeches. One of them, in Indianapolis, was entitled Only an Enemy Refuses to Buy, and she asked her listeners, quote, Are you going to be worthy of your boys who suffered and died for you? If there is one among you who will not buy a bond, he is an enemy and should be deported at once to his home with the others. Her speeches raised tens of thousands of dollars at every event she headlined, She was a one-woman fundraising machine. Meanwhile, the poppy was growing in recognition in France, the UK and the United States. People began planting them in their gardens as a show of support, and local authorities planted them in public parks as memorials to the men who died. We don't know when Anna became first aware of the use of the poppy as a symbol of remembrance, but it was already in use in the United States thanks to the work of Moina Michael, a YMCA worker in New York, who, inspired by In Flanders Fields, 
distributed silk poppies around her office. Whether Anna knew of Moyna's work is unknown, but we do know when she first used them as part of her fundraising efforts. In October 1919, Anna addressed a convention of the Gold Star Mothers of Baltimore. Gold Star Mothers were a grassroots group of women who had lost a son during the war, and Anna claims that after having read in Flanders Fields, she wanted to use the puppy as a national rallying symbol for remembrance. She wrote, quote, All the speakers at the convention presented an idea to find a symbol in memoriam for the heroes of the war. One of these ladies did propose the daisy, another a special little flag. But it was Anna's idea that was accepted. She continues, quote, Plans were made that I should use the Flanders puppies as a means to raise one million francs for the children of devastated France. And it was decided that in each state, one of the Gold Star mothers would be my state president for the Flanders Fields puppy days. Immediately, I made a silk sample of the Flanders Fields puppy, and we had 10,000 silk poppies made in Baltimore. And two weeks after the convention, we had the first puppy day in the streets of Baltimore. Around this time, she also founded the American branch of the American and French Children's League, which took as its emblem the puppy. The League's primary purpose was to raise money for the children of the devastated regions of France, providing everything from food, clothing and medical care, to children's homes for orphans, and baby clothes and cots for mothers. These puppies were principally made in French orphanages by French children, Let's just gently skip over the child labour concerns there. And this added an extra sense of authenticity to the campaign. Branches of the League were set up in every US state, with governors taking a leading role in promoting its activities. In every major town, the mother of a veteran was selected to chair a local committee. Thus, in this way, the League was able to have a presence in every community in the country. They also tied in with the activities of the American Legion, an organisation that had just been established to protect war veterans. The League's initial goal was to raise $10,000 from each state, which is now a little over $150,000. Everywhere they went, they distributed and sold poppies, spreading the idea of it as a symbol, and then using these recipients as evangelists for their cause. These committees held their own poppy days, and these were incredibly successful in raising money. Indeed, many states hit their fundraising targets within only a few months. These days were not tied to a specific day of the year. They were just held at whatever time was expedient. It's worth remembering at this point that although the poppy was being used as a symbol of the devastation of war, it wasn't about servicemen. The focus was very much on the children, on alleviating their suffering and providing for their future. Anna herself travelled the length and breadth of the United States in support of these poppy days, encouraging the local communities and driving their fundraising or forming new ones in communities that didn't have one. These American poppies were mostly red, but some communities in the West used yellow ones instead, as these were native flowers to the region and so more familiar to the local citizenry. But while these events were tremendously successful, Anna was beginning to think bigger. She wanted to spread the message of her poppy day beyond just the United States and France, but to Canada and the UK as well. 
She also wants to move just beyond holding these ad hoc poppy days, kinda whenever, to holding a big national poppy drive. In April 1920, Anna was constantly on the move, going from city to city, meeting to meeting, service to service. And everywhere she went, she spread her message and sold poppies with great earnest. Indeed, this was so successful that she continued her drive into May, where on one day alone she spoke at eight different rallies. Even when this first national poppy drive eventually ended, she went back to her business-as-usual campaigning, albeit at a slightly less frenetic pace. But she did want to take the next step and have a designated day to be associated with the poppy. Now, in the United States, there was already a day associated with war veterans, the 30th of May, Memorial Day, also known then as Decoration Day. This day was the baby of the Grand Army of the Republic. No, not the one from Star Wars, but a group of veterans from the Union side of the American Civil War. Anna had to get their permission to use the day for her cause, and, being a very passionate and persuasive woman, obtained it in September 1919. All her time up to the following May, then, was spent spreading the word. First at a meeting of the American Legion, where they too agreed to adopt the poppy as their emblem. She also set up a permanent US headquarters for the League in Indianapolis, establishing as their motto, We Shall Not Forget. Local poppy days continued to take place all over the country, especially on the 11th of November, the second anniversary of the armistice. But Anna's main focus was on Memorial Day. She continued her endless travel, but also penned countless articles in local print media, making sure that everyone knew that Memorial Day would also be National Poppy Day. As the day grew nearer, newspapers urged their readers to wear their silk poppies on their lapels in the week leading up to Memorial Day, with the movements of the poppy lady from France closely followed. The big drive to sell poppies was on the 28th of May, with the idea being that on Memorial Day itself, you would take your poppy from your chest and lay it at a memorial or on the grave of a loved one. This article, from a paper in Fort Wayne, Indiana, was quite typical. Quote, Just for today and tomorrow, the great red poppies of Flanders Fields, which in war-stained France burned their way into notice, with the profusion of the days in the United States, will be transplanted to America. Thousands and thousands of them will be seen in every town and city throughout the country, born in artistic baskets by charming young society girls, selling them for the benefit of the crippled and blind soldiers and the child victims of the war. Yes, the poppies will be an imitation, but they will have the spirit and the appearance and the tender memories of the poppies on those homely, honourable graves in France, where rest the doughboys who fell in conflict. They will bear a Memorial Day message from those hallowed dead to living Americans, a message asking help for the fatherless children and for those who, deprived of limb or sight or both, must linger on, every hour enduring added suffering, the price they paid for glory. By all accounts, this combination of Poppy Day with Memorial Day was a huge success. The American public took to this honest and straightforward symbol of remembrance, and also to the message of the League 
that the people of the United States, the vast majority of whom had not suffered greatly during the war, owed it to the war-torn people of France to give what they could to ease their suffering. Since Anna had disembarked in the United States, she had been in the country on and off for six years. In that time, it is estimated that she travelled over 43,000 miles across the country. That is roughly equivalent to her circumnavigating the entire globe. Twice. But following the massive success of Memorial Day in 1921, Anna wants to make the next big step. She had conquered America, it was now time to capture the British Empire. The first step on that journey was Canada. This is rather fitting, as of course the author of that poem, In Flanders Field, that started the whole thing, was a Canadian soldier. Anna's first step was to set up a new league, the Canadian Franco Children's League. While Anna was very well known in both France and the United States by now, she was very little known in Canada, and so she had a lot of work to do to establish herself. She prosecuted her mission, however, in precisely the same way as she had before. By attending a ton of meetings, speaking passionately about her nation's struggle, and persuading them to sell poppies to raise money for the children of France and to use it as a symbol of remembrance. Now, of course, Canada had suffered far more significantly than the United States had during the war, as it had been engaged from the start. Canadian casualties in the war numbered around 230,000, 61,000 of them dead. And that was a casualty rate of around 1 in 3 enlisted servicemen, or 3% of the entire population. If the United States went to war today and suffered the same proportion of casualties, that would be nearly 10 million people. This meant that her pitch here had to be slightly different. Instead of emphasising the historic bond between the US and France, and guilting the public about how little they had suffered, Anna played up the remembrance angle. Her great ally in Canada was the Great War Veterans Association, which adopted her inter-allied poppy scheme and ordered two million poppies. That must have been some pitch. Canada, like the rest of the empire, had already adopted Armistice Day as the locus of their commemorations of the war, and so it was decided that that day, the 11th of November, would be Canada's Poppy Day. Anna achieved great success in spreading her message all over Canada, and, now that she had many organisations on side there, she set sail for the UK in August 1921, where she did exactly the same thing, and also sent representatives to Australia, New Zealand and South Africa to spread the word there. She left her sister and a colleague behind in Canada to continue her work there. In the UK, she met with the leadership of the British Legion, which had only just been set up as a union of three different veterans groups, and was headed by Earl Haig, the controversial commander of British forces in France during the war, and the Prince of Wales. Her groundwork in getting Canadians on side paid off big time here, as British Empire veterans groups had strong links with each other, and her arrival, and that of her representatives, were often accompanied with letters or telegrams from Canada endorsing her actions and encouraging everyone to welcome her. 
The British Legion adopted the idea of Inter-Allied Poppy Day in September 1921, and around the same time it was also adopted by veterans groups in Australia and New Zealand. With that success under her belt, she trailed back across the Atlantic, where she had a rather unexpected battle to fight in the United States. The American Legion had never been totally comfortable with the poppy as a symbol, and there had been a change of leadership in June 1921, when the National Commander, an ally of Anna's, tragically died in a car crash. The new leadership of the Legion didn't like this imposition of a French symbol, and not one native to the US, and so they adopted the daisy as their emblem. This was a tremendous blow to Anna, as the US had been her home base, the place where she had made her name. And now that she was expanding her reach across the world, she faced this setback. One by one, all the organisations that Anna had worked with steadily melting away, favouring daisy drives over poppy drives. Anna and her colleagues in the League continued to plug away, spreading the idea of inter-allied poppy day, and poppy days were still held throughout the early 1920s in the United States. Having been abandoned by the American Legion, she instead teamed up with the Veterans of Foreign Wars of the United States organisation, a smaller body but still one of some influence. Indeed, President Harding gave the movement his own endorsement, writing to one of Anna's colleagues, quote, I find myself heartily in sympathy with the purpose of the veterans of foreign wars and the American war mothers, in their request that the people at large shall wear on Memorial Day a poppy, the inter-allied memorial flower. It is a most appropriate mode of testifying our remembrance and recognition of the significant obligation of the nation to those who gave everything in the service during the World War. I trust that the suggestion that you have presented will be generously adopted throughout the nation. Anna was in Canada for Armistice Day 1921, but the biggest success that day for the inter-allied poppy appeal was in the UK where the demand for poppies was so high that many local authorities ran out. The British Legion was a very new organisation, and so had to rely on a loan from Anna herself to buy in all the poppies and to make their own ones, reimbursing her after Armistice Day. The supply coming from France turned out to be woefully insufficient, and so local groups of volunteers worked tirelessly to make more. Volunteers taught teachers, who in turn taught their students turning classrooms into mini-poppy workshops. But while Anna Guerin had been the original instigator of this first British Poppy Day, and had been responsible for getting Earl Haig on board, it was the Field Marshal that took the credit. He was the one that drove the appeal in the UK, and deserves some credit for its success, but he was erroneously thought to have had the idea in the first place, which, of course, is wrong. This article, from a Scottish newspaper, the Arbroath Herald and Advertiser, was quite typical. Quote, Earl Haig, the President of the British Legion, has also suggested the wearing of the poppy on the 11th of November as the national memorial flower. It grows in profusion in Flanders, where so many of our dead are buried, and everybody will be asked to buy and wear an artificial poppy in memory of the men who gave up their lives in the war. The idea is of French origin. It will be financially helpful to the women and children in the devastated areas who are engaged in making the poppies, and it is also hoped that the scheme will raise generous funds 
for assisting ex-servicemen of all ranks. As you can see, the article there mentions the idea for the puppy was initially French, but does not mention the instigator, Anna Guerin, naming only Haig. This was then compounded by images and newsreel that emerged from the day itself, where Haig, alongside hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of people, descended on the cenotaph in Westminster, donned puppies and laid puppy wreaths in memory of the fallen. From then on, the Earl Haig Fund, under the auspices of the British Legion, took over the production of puppies, opening a factory in Bermondsey that employed five disabled ex-servicemen. Relying on supply from France had led to significant shortages, the only thing indeed that had marred the huge success of the first puppy day. So now Britain could ensure that it would always have sufficient puppies to commemorate their dead. Today the factory has moved south to Richmond-upon-Thames and produces over 6 million puppies, 146,000 wreaths and 780,000 wooden remembrance crosses and still employs 30 disabled veterans. Nowhere in the world did Anna's Inter-Allied Puppy Day scheme succeed more spectacularly than in the UK. But, as I've said, its success did not bring about great recognition for Anna. Down Under, Anna's puppy appeal also had great success. Like the United States, Australia and New Zealand already had a version of Remembrance Day, Anzac Day. This is celebrated on the 25th of April, the anniversary of the first Antipodean landings during the 1915 Gallipoli campaign. Anna organised hundreds of thousands of puppies to be shipped to Australia and New Zealand for Armistice Day 1921 and Anzac Day 1922. Both were big successes, and the puppy was quickly entrenched there as it was in the UK and Canada. And there lay the problem for Anna and her cause. All the countries of the British Empire recognised the power and symbolism of the puppy and how it raised so much money for their own veteran organisations. And this is where national self-interest took over the whole process. Anna's purpose throughout all of this had been to raise money for the people of the devastated regions of France, especially for widows and orphans. But that wasn't the priority for the people of the British Empire, or indeed the United States. They had their own veterans to take care of, their own widows and bereaved children that needed support. So their puppy sales went to those courses and not to the people of France. One exception of this was the United States, where in 1923 the American Legion reversed its decision and readopted the puppy and dumped the daisy. They made use of puppies made in France, and when those ran out, they made their own in a factory in New York. But ultimately, the same thing happened in the US as had occurred in the British Empire. Locally made puppies supplanted those made in France, and the proceeds stayed in the United States. There, they were called buddy puppies, and the buddy puppy appeal still exists today, run by the Veterans of Foreign Wars organisation, the last vestige of the puppy in the United States. So, now that her campaign had run its course, what was next for Anna Guerin? Well, she continued to be involved in puppy drives and appeals throughout the 1920s, though it seems that her various leagues were dissolved. She did some work in British Empire countries, but the majority of her time was split between France and the US. Sometime in the 1930s, she opened a business in New York selling French antiques, 
and spent the entirety of the Second World War years there. Not much is known of this period of Anna's life, and what we do know is pieced together from various bits of government information or travel documentation that give a frustratingly piecemeal notion of what she was up to. We know, for example, that she went back to doing her artistic lectures in the 40s, and was still in the antiques business at least until the early 50s. Following the war, she continued to split time between France and the US, often returning to her hometown of Vallon. On the 16th of April, 1961, Anna died in Paris. Her death was recorded in a few local newspapers, but nothing more extensive than that. An indictment of how, despite her incredible legacy, her work had evolved and outgrown her to the extent that she was no longer remembered. There are many people to whom the popularity of the poppy today can be credited. There is the poet John McRae that first brought it to the public's consciousness. There is Moyna Michael, who first spread the idea of using it as a symbol into the United States. There is Earl Haig, whose prolific work in embedding it into British culture is still felt today. But while those names, particularly the two men, are remembered today, the work of Anna Guerin is forgotten. But she is the vital missing link, the kindling, if you like, between John McRae and Moyna Michael, who provided the first spark, and Earl Haig and the other various heads of veterans' organisations that provided the fire that still burns today. But it was Anna's tireless campaigning over a period of nearly a decade, travelling tens of thousands of miles across North America, not to mention the constant crisscrossing of the Atlantic that got the movement off the ground that provided the supply of poppies and the manpower, well, actually really the woman power, and that embedded the culture of poppy buying and poppy wearing that allowed the movement to flourish elsewhere. There would be no poppy on my lapel today, nor on that of millions of other people. She died forgotten and has remained so for decades. But I hope at least that you, dear listeners, will keep her in your thoughts on this important day. Before I go, I would like to give a quick thank you to Heather Johnson, a researcher from Essex, whose magnum opus of work on Anna Guerin was the basis for this episode. Her website, www.poppyladymadamguerin.wordpress.com, is the most incredible piece of amateur historical research that I have come across in a long time. All the quotes and most of my own research for this episode came from it. If you would like to learn more about Anna Guerin, I would strongly recommend that you give it a read. I've put a link in the show notes. I hope that you've enjoyed this little supplemental, and I'll see you in two weeks for the next instalment of the story of Alex of Hesse. <laughs>